Welcome to the Real Clear Politics Takeaway for Friday, October 9th. I'm Andrew Walworth. The countdown to the election continues. It is just 24 days until November 3rd. Already 5 million ballots have been cast in early voting. And we'll look at the most recent polls, the battle for control of the U.S. Senate, and we'll look at what may happen next when it comes to the remaining presidential debates. Joining me are some of my colleagues from Real Clear Politics, co-founder and president Tom Bevan, Washington Bureau Chief Carl Cannon, and RCP Senior Election Analyst Sean Trendy. So, Tom, let me start with you. We always focus on the swing states, which uh, RCP identifies as Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, Florida, North Carolina, Arizona. Um, as of this morning, uh, let me see, the average po- polling Trump trails Biden by 9.7% nationally, 4.6% in the battleground states. Is time running out for the president? And can he overcome what looks like these very bad poll numbers? Yes and yes. I mean, time is running out, but but I think he can uh, overcome or at least get to you know change the direction. It, it looks like he's he suffered a decline, certainly nationally. Um, you know, Biden's expanded his lead by over two points just since the first debate. And and Biden's lead in some of these key swing states uh, has also increased. In Florida, for example, it was, I think, one percentage point just 10 days ago. Now it's about three and a half. In North Carolina, it was half a percentage point. His Biden's lead, now it's, now it's one and a half. So Trump has definitely suffered some, some decline. Although if you look at the latest, latest polls, as in like this morning, Trump plus four in Arizona, plus two in Georgia, plus five in Texas. So not not a bad batch of polls for Trump um, this morning. So if you look at those top six battleground states you mentioned, while Joe Biden's lead nationally is well ahead of where Hillary Clinton was four years ago, his average lead in those six battleground states is is almost exactly where Hillary Clinton was four years ago. So the range of outcomes is it could be a Biden blowout uh, down to very much a repeat of 2016, where... Uh, you know, Trump is able to to win over these swing states, or at least enough of these swing states, to pull off a victory. Just so I get this right, what you're saying is that looking at these polls today, Biden could really rack up big numbers in those blue states, but in the key states, the key swing states, it's still anyone's game. Right. I mean, and Sean can speak to this. I mean, it's not just you know Biden racking up the blue states. You know, four years ago, Trump won Texas by nine and a half. He's going to win that if he wins it by four. That's that's a few hundred thousand votes. Same thing in Ohio. If he wins that by half of what he won, or Iowa's a lot closer, Missouri's a lot closer, South Carolina. So Biden could could do better than Hillary Clinton nationally, but we still could end up with a very, very similar result from an electoral college standpoint. So Sean, you have a piece this morning on the homepage. I'm pretty sure it's being dissected very carefully at the RNC and the DNC. Uh, it's called Trump's Path to Victory with a Nod to Washington State. It's built around your analysis of the Washington state primary as a predictor of national elections, which you're going to have to explain that to me. Give us a sense. What is your thinking on this one? So Washington state holds kind of a unique primary in August. All the candidates run on the ballot at the same time, regardless of party, and you can vote for whoever you want. And the thing about it is over time, because that primary occurs pretty late in the cycle, it's historically been predictive of where things end up in November. And so, look, when, when I did this analysis, I went in fully expecting it to look something like 2018, where Democrats got like 62% of the vote in the primary. 
But it's not what happened. It was almost exactly where it was in 2016 with Democrats getting about 56% of the vote, notwithstanding the fact that the state has probably swung leftward overall. The way I view this election is that if you look at things besides the head-to-head polls, they would all point towards some sort of Trump victory. And that's what makes this kind of so perplexing. Carl, what do you think of that? Sean and I have been looking at the same data and wondering what it means. I mean, one of the things, and we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, one of the things I've been interested in is how large could you lose the popular vote by and still win the electoral college? And that's kind of your worst case scenario because that would lead to, I mean, if you think the Democrats lost their minds four years ago, uh, that would really be a kind of a crisis. Carl, I just need to jump in and remind you, it is 2020, so it's probably going to happen that way. <laughs> Good point. I, but, you know, we the Real Clear Politics average for Friday morning, October 9th, had Biden, this is the national poll now, Biden at 51.6%. I remember Hillary Clinton never sniffed 50%. This is now Biden's going, this is as high as he's been. He's, he's closer to 52 than 51 and Trump is 41.9, so Trump's at 42. So Trump's about where he was. Biden is getting all of the, everything else that's left over. All the undecided seem to have broke for Biden. Now, last time in California, I remember thinking that before the election, that Trump could pull off this unusual feat of losing the popular vote and winning the Electoral College because California gave Hillary Clinton a 2 million vote margin. Instead, it was closer to, four, it was about 4 million. And, and you start to look at these, these big states, New York, these big blue states, New York, Illinois, California, the margin for Biden will be larger than it was for Hillary Clinton. The Electoral College won't change. It'll be the same. And all these states that Sean and Tom have been talking about, Texas, Florida, Ohio, even if Trump wins them, but he wins them by half the margin he won last time or a very close margin, you're quickly beyond the 5 million vote threshold. And this has never happened before. And and you could get, I don't know what mathematically the limit is. I, I suppose it's not 10 but it could be closer to 10 than five. And then you've got a real problem. So that's what I've been looking at and wondering about. Sean, I just want to go back to this Washington state model, which is so interesting. That was in August. That was recent in any other year. I'd say, well, that's, that's pretty good. This year, it seems like a million years ago. Could things change so much since then that the model would be off? I mean, yeah, it's, look, it's possible. And, and none of these things are formal cut and dried. They're indicators of where the environment is. But I would say this, like 2008, the model predicts well, you know, and and that's a year where in between you had the financial collapse. In 2018, it predicts well, even though you had the Kavanaugh blow up in the middle. So, you know, in 2016, it predicts well. People forget 2016 was just as crazy. It It was almost to the day right now when the uh, Access Hollywood tape dropped. Like that mm-hmm. dropped, I think, October 7th. I think what this model, this this Washington thing gets at is a sense of what the fundamentals are, where the race really wants to be. Um, it doesn't mean it'll inevitably go there, just as with any model. It just kind of means that if you're going to make a case for it not going there, you're making the this time it's different argument, which doesn't have an awesome track record. Sean, one of the you know things that people have talked about, right, the difference, and I think you've talked about this before, is that there are similarities and echoes to 2016, but there are differences. Number one, Joe Biden isn't as as unlikable as Hillary Clinton. And number two, you know, if you go back and look at that race, there did seem to be 
uh, I think you might have said maybe last time you were on the show, like it, it, it was a race that wanted to be close and every now and then wasn't. Um, and we kept seeing these tightenings to a point where, you know, get to a point or two, at one point Donald Trump even took the lead briefly. This race has been the opposite of that. Despite all these shocks to the system that Andy mentioned, the polling's been pretty remarkably stable. What's your take on on why that is the difference between, you know, this time and last time? Yeah, so I think Joe Biden, like you said, is likable and he, he hasn't got he is generic Democrat because he hasn't gotten out all that much. I, I think Donald Trump has a track record. Like if you, if you look at the job approval polls for Barack Obama, he actually wasn't that much better than Donald Trump is today in our average. I think he was probably at like 47% and Trump's at around 44. But Barack Obama had also a 47% disapprove. Trump's is like 53. Like there, there just aren't many undecideds about Trump. It's why at the end of the day, I, I think he probably loses. I just think this is going to be a closer race than the polls are showing right now. Um, can I so, comment on that, Andy? Sean said earlier, he said, amplifying the point he just made that, you know, if you weren't just looking at the head to heads, that, that this thing feels maybe closer than it is. And what that means is that there are other things going on, right? We like the polls to be right because we base stories on it and, and the camp candidates base campaigning on it. But uh, Selena Zito wrote a piece for us out of Pennsylvania and the polls there show Biden up by two to three times what Hillary Clinton was up. Still close, six, six points maybe. But the last poll average we had had her under two ahead in Pennsylvania, which, we, which she lost in basically a dead heat. But Selena looked at some other things and she interviewed a political scientist there who, who kind of noticed last time that things felt differently in Pennsylvania. And, and so when we talk about what are the, some of these other things, um, Selena writes that there have been 276,648. So almost 277,000 people in Pennsylvania bought a gun for the first time, including significant portion of women and African-Americans. And she was, are these cautionary flags for Democrats that pollsters ignore at their peril? So, and, and this professor that she talked about, she talked to him and he said, you know, this shy voter, this shy Trump voter thing that, you know, he didn't put that much stock in. And we've, it was a theory that was hard to tease out to prove that it was true. But among African-Americans and women, he said it could well be true. Um, they just, they'd get a phone call or they just couldn't bring themselves to say out loud they're voting for Trump, but they went out and bought a handgun. So, you know, these are the kind of things that later, if we get surprised, we go back and look at and say, why didn't we notice? just want to turn to the Senate here because uh, there's sort of a growing idea that the Senate is really up for grabs. Let's let's talk about that. Cook Political Report identifies eight Republican-held seats that lean Democratic or toss-up. They added Lindsey Graham this week to a toss-up. Tom, back to you. Does uh, does that make sense to you? And what's happening uh, generally in terms of the Senate race and, and in particular in South Carolina? Yeah, I mean, we, we do have a couple of polls in uh, – in September, late September, showing the the Senate race in, uh, in South Carolina close. I mean, Lindsey Graham up a point, the other one had it tied. So it does seem, I mean, the one thing that we, we have seen is the Democrats have raised an inordinate amount of money. All their candidates are just blowing the doors off in terms of fundraising. And as a result, they're, they're finishing this campaign by blanketing the airwaves with, you know, ads upon ads upon ads. Um, in Iowa, for example, Teresa Greenfield raised 20 something million dollars. That's a close race. So 
Yeah, look, I think the Senate right now is is touch and go for Republicans. It'll depend, I think, on who who has the better night on November third. If you look at our no toss up map right now, you Dems would pick up a net gain of four seats. They'd lose Alabama, but they'd win Arizona, Colorado, Maine, and North Carolina. But in North Carolina, you've got a situation now where the Democrat there, Cal Cunningham, is in the middle of a what started as a sexting scandal has has ballooned from that into a full-on, you know, sort of affair. And on top of that, he's being investigated by the military because he he is a reservist himself and he conducted this affair with a veteran's wife. And apparently there's more to come on that. There were allegations of a second woman. So I'm going to be really interested to see uh, the numbers, new numbers in that race and see where that where that stands. Slate had, Slate had a piece out this morning. It says, is a dumb affair going to ruin the Democrats' chance for the Senate? And the answer is, Maybe. <laughs> I was going to ask about that. Carl, how do you view that race right now? They could lose it and still win and still get the center or get it to 50-50. In the last poll that our average, the Democrats were still up in Carolina by five points. So I'm not, this guy's picked the wrong time to implode. And if he loses, I won't be surprised. But on the other hand, there were some interviews done uh, by political reporters down there and one, they quoted one young swing voter, although if you've been watching these town halls, I'm always skeptical when someone's identified as a swing voter. It turns out they're a Democratic Party contributor. But anyway, this guy had a line. He said, OK, so because Tom Tillis got infected at the White House and he said, OK, so do I write, vote for the guy with the affair or the guy with COVID? Eh, maybe I'll vote for the guy with the affair. So I don't know that that thing's over there. It's not these aren't the two strongest candidates you could have. The other states, though, Andy, um, you know, in Montana. Uh, that should be that should be Trump country, and that should be the Republicans. They've got two. There's two very strong candidates there for the Senate: Danes and Bullock. Danes is still ahead in our average. The Republican, he's still ahead, but Bullock is very well known and, and well liked there. And that thing, I have a friend who's working on that campaign. He says their polls show it tightening, and they, for all they, they think it may be a dead heat right now. So you know, if this turns out to be a wave election. And all these close races break the Democrats' way. You know, they could pick up more than the 51. You know, they could be more than the four seats we're talking about now. So, Sean, there was a story earlier this week where Martha McSally, she was debating her opponent, Mark Kelly, and she would not say that she was proud of her association affiliation with Donald Trump, and it made headlines. And I pointed out, I want to get your take on this. I looked at the seven most competitive Senate races where we have uh, enough polling for an average. And the GOP Senate candidates are running behind where Trump is by anywhere from, you know, two-tenths of a percentage point in Michigan, uh, John James, all the way up to 4.6 in in North Carolina, 4.2 in Iowa. Um, So why are the GOP Senate candidates not running so far behind Donald Trump? And what... What does that say, if anything, about what this what the political landscape is? So there's a lot of things, you know, maybe we'll talk about this in a minute, but like this is going to seem circuitous and perhaps it is, but I think it's a good way to look at it. Like there was that poll from CNN that showed Biden up 16. Um, and when you looked into the internals, it had baby boomers voting for Biden at the, at the exact same rate that millennials were. Right. Like Biden was winning them by 21. And there's two things you can do with that. Like you can say, wow, like Trump is actually losing older Americans by 23 points. Like how bad things are for him. Or you would say like, 
oh, I'm not so sure about this poll right now. And you don't want to go like full on skew, but like your eyebrow raises. And I kind of do the same thing. Like, okay, we know that in 2016, it was the first election, I think, ever, uh, certainly in the modern era, where every state that Donald Trump carried, uh, the Republican Senate candidate carried, and every state that he lost, the Republican Senate candidate lost. Um and they Republican Senate candidates actually ran like a point on average ahead of Donald Trump. So I look at this and I see Donald Trump's job approval, which is traditionally one of the best indicators of how a president will do. You know, they run a point ahead of their job approval, roughly. And so I look at Trump trailing his job approval and then I look at these GOP senators trailing Trump and I'm like, either something's off Again, we're just kind of using a heuristic here. It's possible that this is all true. But when I look at it, I think either something's off or this is a race that wants to close. Like these people that are Trump approvers at the end of the day are going to vote for Donald Trump for president, just like in every other presidential election I've looked at. And they're also going to vote for Republican Senate candidates. Let's turn then to something that other people are talking about, uh, which is the next presidential debate. It's very difficult to, on a Friday morning to figure out exactly where each uh, campaign is in terms of their positioning on this. But Carl, bottom line is, uh, do you think we'll have a second debate? And if so, when and how? This thing is, is in flux. And overnight, Andy, you may know the most unexpected thing happened. Tom mentioned earlier, nothing that happens in this crazy year is unexpected. But um, Steve Scully, who is to moderate the town hall debate, uh, he's C-SPAN's very well-liked and uh, nonpartisan person. Steve, <laughs> I know Steve. I've known him for years. I've never thought he was had a partisan bone in his body. But he, he sent a tweet. He put out a tweet, and I think apparently it was supposed to be a message to um, Scaramucci, uh, the, uh, the strange dude who was um, – White House Communications Director for half an hour a year or two ago, and uh, Trump's erstwhile friend, now talking head who slams slimes Trump every chance he gets. Um, yeah, he sent this tweet to Anthony Scaramucci, he said, should I answer Trump or not? And again, it was probably supposed to be a private message. And it was the most unexpected thing. And of course, Trump jumped on it. If he wants to get out of the debate, I, I suppose he now has an excuse. The other, The other reason that that the reason that the president cited that he didn't want to do this is when they talked about the commission on presidential debates talked about moving it virtually from the town hall format to a virtual format. And Trump said, well, I don't want to bother with that, which was a surprise because he does a lot of things virtually. He, he's like, he owns Twitter and he was, he, he did a film of himself when he got back from Walter Reed and put that out. And I mean, I don't know what he thinks that is, if not a virtual uh, communication, but so I, maybe that was a negotiating tactic. If the Republicans have a beef about this town hall for, format, it's something I mentioned a, a moment ago. These people are supposed to be undecided voters. And, you know, NBC had a, a quote town hall for, uh, with Joe Biden in Miami earlier this week. And these people seem to be, first of all, they, they were undecided voters who had been on MSNBC, the sister network of NBC, um, last week, identified as Biden, Biden supporters. So it was kind of weird. And you know, this idea where civilians, there's so few people who don't have an opinion about Donald Trump one way or another, and the country's so divided, and there's so few actual swing voters anymore. Maybe it is hard to find these people, but 
you can't just stack the thing, the audience with Democrats and think the Republicans are going to think they got a fair shake. So I assumed Trump was trying to negotiate. Um, but, you know, Andy, this could change by the time you edit this podcast and get us on the air. <laughs> um, Sean, do you think it's important? Hey, that can the I president- jump in there too? The other thing that happened yeah. is like within minutes, Joe Biden had already rescheduled for a town hall in Philadelphia on ABC News on that same uh, on that same day. So he's got something going on now. Trump says he's going to do a rally in Miami. I don't know how they're going to, you know, put this thing back together again, unless they maybe move the date or, or something I suspect. Um, and if it was a negotiating tactic on Trump's part, I it probably, in my opinion, was a mistake. Um, Cause he gets one less chance to try and, you know, get, get in some licks on Biden. But, um, I don't think it's going to happen now. And, you know, that opens the door to whether the third debate is even going to happen. We may have already seen the one and only debate in this presidential race. So, John, do you think it'd be advantageous for Trump to have a, a second debate? Everyone expected when Biden had to stand up for 90 minutes in front of the American people that he might have a Biden moment. This is one less opportunity for him to pull off some big gaffe. Yeah, I, I think I think Trump probably could have used these last two debates. If you, if you had to defend Trump's first debate performance, you would defend it on the grounds that, that it reset expectations for him, right? Like now, if he doesn't look like a lunatic in his last two debates. (laughs) So he lowered the bar for himself. So so like that's part of the, yeah. I mean, I'm not saying that this was his 12 dimensional chess or anything like that. I'm just saying that one of the effects of this is that Biden had had the bar lowered for him to the point where if he didn't look like he had late stage Alzheimer's, he was going to be declared the winner. Like that's not the case anymore. Uh, And I don't think he does. I'll I'll take a hard stand there. I I think he's lost a step or two or three. All Trump needed to do at these next debates was, was not be what he was in the first debate and let Biden talk, you know, because constantly interrupting Biden meant he didn't really have a chance to have a misstep uh, and, and, and see what happens. I mean, Biden almost signed on to the Green New Deal at the last debate in the closing rounds. So I, I think it is probably a missed opportunity for Trump. Well, Andy, this is Carl. You don't, you know, if you're behind three touchdowns in the fourth quarter, you don't try and run out the clock. I agree with these with with Sean and Tom. I don't. How does Trump not want to debate? Yeah, it's on that point, and this just this circles back to something we were talking about earlier, which is Biden's sort of likability, especially compared to Clinton last time around. Can Biden continue to sort of not answer questions, particularly? I'm thinking of the Supreme Court. Uh, packing question and maintain this sort of lead in his popularity. And sometimes you feel like he's reading the stage directions. He said, they'll know my opinion on court packing when the election is over. Now, look, I know it's a great question and I don't blame you for asking it, but you know, the moment I answer that question, the headline in every one of your papers will be about that. Tom, can, can he maintain that position? Doesn't the press have a responsibility to uh, try to smoke him out on this? I think they do. Uh, I'm not sure they will, but it's pretty astonishing that, that, you know, I don't think I've ever heard a presidential candidate say, I'm not going to answer your question because it'll make news. Um, <laughs> that doesn't seem to be a standard that's uh, applied. But again, how do you stop this? I mean, they've already asked him a number of times. He's given the same pat answer. Kamala Harris has been asked this a number of times, including on the debate stage. 
I think it will continue to be a problem uh, for them. And I think, you know, eventually if, if, if there is enough, it starts showing up in the numbers that people, voters are taking notice of this and are, are not in favor of it and get upset by it, that, that he might eventually come out. I mean, at least have the decency to lie to our face and say no, and then he can change his mind later after he gets elected. I mean, that's, you know, read my lips type thing. Um, but I, I, short of George Stephanopoulos, you know, saying on that, the town hall, asking the question and saying, you know, we're, we're just going to sit here for 90 minutes until you answer the question, right? We're not doing anything else. We're not asking any voters anything. Um, I, I don't know how you would get him to answer the question if he doesn't want to. And then, then it's in the voters' hands. Carl, how would you get him to answer this question? Well, look, you can't. And you, you pointed out, Andy's reading this stage directions. I, I saw George H.W. Bush do that a couple of times, once in a debate. And he even said, oh, you mean the vision thing, which was like shorthand for what his, how he'd been prepped. And people made fun of it. Um, there was once a senator from New Mexico named Joseph Montoya who read the speech once at a, an event. He was slowing down I, at the time. He, he, and, and instead of, he read, instead of reading the speech, he read the press release, including he came to a point and he said in the speech, uh, Joseph Montoya, our uh, New Mexico, paused for applause. And he, he was reading. And of course, the audience started hooting and he thought, oh, they liked the speech. So the press reaction doesn't always get these guys. It's hard to get them off their, their brief. But Biden... You know, we talked about Trump should debate because he's behind the same dynamic works in reverse for Biden. He's ahead. So he doesn't want to make any mistakes. He, he literally doesn't want to make news. And, you know, I it's pretty clear that the mainstream media has taken sides in this election. Even if it hadn't, he'd rather take the hit for stonewalling an issue than actually getting swing voters to think, oh, the Democrats really are radical if he said he would pack the court or getting the base to say, oh, we should have voted for Bernie if he says he wouldn't pack the court. So he feels as a tactical point, there's no percentage in him is answering. And I think it's going to be hard to shake them off of it. Well, Sean, we're sort of getting down to the short strokes here. I, I just want to get your view on a scenario. We were talked about how last time there was no ticket splitting. Do you see that happening again this time? Or is there a possibility that you end up with a Republican Senate and a Democrat in the White House? I think there is a narrow window where you get that, actually, because like North Carolina is going to be a couple points more Republican than the country as a whole. You see that in the swing state polling. Right. So you can see a situation where where Biden win, ends up winning. Wisconsin. The polls say Biden's up in Wisconsin right now by five and a half points. Let's say he ends up winning Wisconsin by two or three points. That means he probably loses North Carolina by a point or two. Um, and at that point, you can see the situation where Tillis squeaks through. You see Georgia and South Carolina kind of com- kind of revert to mean. Um, you know, Iowa. Iowa, same story. Uh, look, look. I, I mean, I'm, I'm piling kind of inference on inference and if upon if, and that should tell you something. I, I think outside of this kind of narrow band of outcomes, you end up with a Republican president and a Republican senator, a Democratic president and a Democratic senator. I have a Final question for Sean, too. Sean, on a scale of one to 10, one being it, it goes as smoothly as you can possibly imagine, 10 being sort of, you know, nuclear holocaust situation. How bad is the post-November 3rd situation going to be in terms of ballots being counted, discounted, legal situation, you know, <laughs> faithless electors? I mean, what's your view of what, what lays beyond the actual election day? Uh, 26. 
So, so here's what I, my take on this is that if you're a praying type, what you should be <laughs> praying for is that on election night, Trump either loses Florida because Florida pre-counts ballots so, or pre- prepares their ballots. So um, we, we, will, we will have a very good – if Trump loses Florida, he's not going to win the election. If Trump wins Florida by more than, say, three points, he's going to win the election. The nightmare scenario is in the middle where he wins Florida narrowly and then we're going to be litigating ballots in Wisconsin and Michigan and Pennsylvania for the next month. Um, especially, you know, I don't know if you've been following this naked ballot thing in Pennsylvania where people aren't, you know, there's not a tradition of absentee balloting there. So hundreds of thousands of people have just kind of put their ballots in an envelope and sent them in. You're supposed to put them in a security envelope and then put the security envelope in an outer envelope. Those ballots are disqualified. Um, And because the Democrats are pushing early voting, those are going to be Democratic ballots disproportionately. And Trump's margin of victory was we are already already talking about hundreds of thousands of ballots. Um, And Trump's margin of victory in Pennsylvania was 44,000 last time. This is potentially a nightmare. Sean, this may explain why so many Pennsylvanians are buying guns. (laughs) I, I, I... Again, I, I don't think people – I think people have kind of thought about this. Uh, yeah, like I don't think people have priced in. We discard hundreds of thousands of absentee ballots every year because they're, people forget to put their birthday on it. They don't get a witness. They move and they forgot to update their – like. and that's before we had a major political party urging everyone to vote early by mail. I mean this is going to be a debacle if it's a close election. Absolute debacle. 26 out of 10. <laughs> I agree, 100%. Well, on that happy note. Um, no, Andy, we're not ending on that. I think it's going to go very, I think it's going to go very smoothly, and, and we'll know the president the following day, and we'll write our Sunday stories and, um, you know, go fly fishing or on long deferred vacation, <laughs> and we'll be able to get our vaccine that week, too, because. Uh, <laughs> okay. uh, Carl, thank you for ending it. Hopeful note. Um, this has been the Real Clear Politics Takeaway for Friday, October 9th. If you want to find out more, check out realclearpolitics.com. I want to thank Tom Bevan, Carl Cannon, and Sean Trendy. Until next time, thank you for listening. For Real Clear Politics, I'm Andrew Walworth.